0: Love, talk, radio. Hello out there, my name is Sam Maxwell and welcome to the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast on this Saturday morning. The podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers re- uh, TV series research process. And today I, I'm happy to be joined by somebody who described to me what he is doing as being in the same ballpark but in another dugout. And that does not mean that we're rivals in a sense, but, but uh, kind of... Uh, you know, compatriots in, uh, in in this discovering of of history and and writing our own tales about about it, uh, and that is author John McLaughlin, who is working on a book about the Giants' departure from New York. How are you doing, John? I'm doing well, Sam. Thank you for having me on the show today. Absolutely. And before we get into the the Giants' aspect of things and and that era, I want to ask you about your your own baseball roots. Uh, you're you're around my age, so you. Uh, are, are discovering the history while going through your own history as well. So tell me about your baseball roots in New York. Well, I live in the Bronx. I live in the Locust Point neighborhood of the Throgsneck
1: section, so it's the very easternmost portion of the South Bronx, but it doesn't fall into the South Bronx category, as I make air quotes. Um, but when I was on my lawn playing wiffle ball with my dad when I was five, he started telling me about the history of the Yankees, And then when the fact hit me that it was 10 minutes away from where I was living, well, that took me. I was in, uh, and I've been a Yankee fan ever since. I'm actually writing a second book besides the Giants one about the different stadiums I've been to, um, and I've followed essentially the Yankees around the country, but I've been to 38 ballparks, and I've
0: seen the Yankees in 30, so I'm, I'm pretty hardcore into the Yankees. As I used to be when I was coming up as a baseball fan uh, at, at the age of 13. That's where I really discovered it. After kind of settling in for two years or three years, mind you, uh, in New York, uh, moving here in 1995 and going through the Yankees in 1996 in some ways because of my my sixth grade teacher. Uh, but <laughs> then I eventually, I eventually converted to the Mets and I got a Queens baseball convention to go to later. But I appreciate that. Uh, You are a a die-hard hardcore fan from the actual landmass that the Yankees are on.
1: Yes, yes. I I know there are a lot of people that have jumped on the pinstripe bandwagon, especially after the success that happened starting in 96. But I remember the years of Claudel Washington and the likes of Alvaro Espinosa, so I think I've earned my, my medals there.
0: So what year were you born, John? I was born in 1980. Right, okay, so I, I thought you, you made it your way out of the 70s. and um, No, no, I, I don't remember the 70s uh, at all. Right, exactly. I, that, I, I, by that I meant that you were, a, you were an 80s kid through and through, that, that yes. you didn't experience it at all. But um, I, I appreciate that the, because, you know, you're five years older than me and, and you went through uh, the Yankees in the 80s when they, they just kind of hovered there.
1: They there were some lean years, especially those late 80s. In the mid-80s, when I first started liking the team in 85, uh, I remember this. I, they were in the pennant race until September. They were chasing the Blue Jays, and then they just sort of fell apart, and I was pretty upset about it as a five-year-old. And well,
0: then, I've, always,
1: I've always hated the Red Sox as well. In 86, I remember specifically cheering for the Mets, specifically because I hated the Red Sox.
0: Nice. Well, I- exactly. So uh, maybe, maybe some of the, the Yankee ghosts, as they say, helped along as well, right?
1: Uh, <laughs> Most likely. Which sums uh, a well, lot of Mets and fans Bill probably Bunker do not that. want to
0: hear from me right now.
1: <laughs> well, I have nothing against the Mets, honestly. They've never bothered me, and I'm actually a little closer to Citi Field than I am to Yankee Stadium. I just don't have to cross a bridge to get to, C- to Yankee Stadium.
0: Right, right, exactly. So here, here's my question before we move on from the Yankee talk.
1: Tell me about 1991. Well, um, that was not good. Um, they, ooh, that was embarrassing to watch.
0: They were very
1: bad. I mean, I still was listening to them. I remember listening. I had a little uh, Walkman sort of, it was an AM-FM deal with headphones, but no tape thing because I didn't have any tapes. But, yeah, I remember listening to all the games and just being disgusted by them. But, That's part of being a fan. You have to go through the bad times to get through the good. But at the same time, that was Bernie Williams' first year. It was. It was. And um, you could tell that Bernie had something there, but he just looked like such a dork. You didn't think he could play because of the big glasses and just the way his hat was. But he was very graceful in center field, and you could see that pretty early on. And they were sort of laying the foundation for turning it around, but it was tough to see. The forest through the trees there. That was that was a rough time.
0: Well, for what I went through with the Yankees in the late '90s, uh, experiencing baseball to myself for the first time, uh, Bernie Williams, it, I would say it, it might be arguably the sweetest swing I've ever seen. Sure, I would like, it, like, you know, it,
1: it's up there. I would put him or Darryl Strawberry
0: in terms of just pure oh,
1: swings. Yeah. Uh, Eric Davis too had a really good one and it's odd that Eric Davis and Daryl Strawberry grew up in the same neighborhood, but it was, those those guys definitely had sweet swings, and honestly, so did Don Mattingly. Yeah,
0: oh, a very sweet swing. So, you know, being such a Yankee fan, what drew you to to uh, uh, follow the Giants and, and try to find out exactly what happened? Uh, you know, and as we say, the Dodgers exit got, has always gotten a lot more love, so you're writing a book on, on the departure of the Giants, and, and how has that manifested itself in your in in uh, who you are? Well, I was always a baseball fan, and I loved
1: Ken Burns's baseball documentary. I was rewatching it on Netflix one time, and it dawned on me as I was watching, I believe it's the fifth inning. And all the talk was about the Dodgers and Doris Kearns Goodwin and everybody waxing poetic about the Dodgers. And there was maybe... In the whole inning, at most maybe 15 to 20 seconds on the fact that the Giants moved two. And that got me thinking, why is that? Why are the Giants a forgotten team, considering that they had a, they won more, really, and they had some Hall of Famers, they had the first all-black outfield, and it got me wondering. So I tried to find out some things on the Internet, as, if there were any authors speaking about the Giants, and I came across the New York Giants, I believe it's the Nostalgia Society, and I wrote an email to uh, address it to, to whom it may concern. I didn't think anything of it. I moved on with my life, and then with no intention of writing the book about this, and then out of the blue, Gary Mintz from the New York Giants Preservation Society now got back to me, and he said that, well, he apologized for the delay, but he said that he hadn't checked that email account because he had left that society and was starting a new one, And through him, I was able to meet Steve Rothschild, and then that opened up a whole world of other possibilities. And because of all of that, I had enough information where I could, well, theoretically, cobble it together into book form. I haven't finished it yet. I'm still in the research stage. But those connections with Gary Mintz and Steve Rothschild have really opened up a lot of doors, and
0: and then uh, it's it's sort of mushroomed from there. So where have you gone and, and who have you met with this book?
1: Well, um, it was they, the New York Giants Preservation Society has been great in this whole endeavor, and they invited me out to New York Giants Night, which was in AT&T Park back in June of 2012, and I was on the field for the pregame ceremony honoring the history of the Giants in New York, and while I was out there, I also interviewed Peter McGowan through his assistant, Shirley Casbot, and that actually opened up another set of doors, and uh, it really took off from there after that, but it all dates back to Steve and Gary inviting me out to that meeting. It was great to be on the field as they honored it. Um, I sort of just reached out to a former coworker of mine out this idea, and it actually resonates pretty strongly with me. He said, you never know what you're going to get unless you ask for it, and it makes sense. So <laughs> yeah. I actually, I asked the Dodgers, uh, I since the Giants had given me a press pass already to be on the field, I asked the Giants if I would be able to go up to the press box to meet Vince Scully. And I explained to them that I had already spoken to him, that he had called me on my phone. Um, I had gotten his information from Peter McGowan's assistant, who who had a friend on the Dodgers. So she gave me his home address. I wrote him a letter, and he called me. And it's pretty remarkable when you hear that famous voice introduce himself, first off, and say why he's calling, I was sitting there thinking, well, you don't really have to introduce yourself. I kind of know who you are based on the voice. And, Hello.
0: And, uh, yeah, I'm exactly. Bob.
1: <laughs> Hi, John. This is Vin Scully. I was amazed. Thanks. That was a good one. <laughs> oh, thank you. And he was very gracious. He did answer a couple of my questions. He, I had, was under the mistaken impression that he had been there for the demolition of the polo Ground. But it turns out that was not actually the case. He had a picture of the demolition of the polo grounds. He said hmm. if he had been there, it would have broken his heart because he grew up as a Giants fan. Hmm. And when I was out in San Francisco for a New York Giants night against the Dodgers, the Dodgers were gracious enough to let me up into the press box. I actually got to meet Vin and take a picture with him because uh, they, they were very gracious about it. And actually, really really good thing about that Um, later on I was in the press dining room uh, again with the press pass the Giants had given me and I had gotten my food I was on my way back but I'd forgotten to get a knife and fork or something so I was walking back up and Vince Gully was coming by with his food and I moved out of his way and he thanked me by name for moving out of the way so I was very impressed that he remembered who I was oh that's very cool
0: that was was pretty exciting (laughs) he called you he said thank you John he did he did you, you want you want to try to uh, redo this one more time in, in the voice? <laughs> I guess I could try yeah. Thank you, John. There you go.
1: There <laughs> you go. And I did sit next to him, um, not next to him, but next to his table, and I kind of eavesdropped a little bit. on want him and the other Dodgers broadcasters were talking about. He <laughs> bought a new printer at Staples. <laughs> It's really just the benign, the just the benign stuff like that that you don't
0: think about. That they're regular people too. Yeah, and yeah. It's just it just happens to be a profession that they got into, and, and a lot of people know them uh, uh, because of the profession.
1: Yeah, but I mean, he chops at staples just like everybody else.
0: Exactly for yeah. a printer.
1: But then uh, as I went on with it, um, I was able to through Steve Rothschild, I was able to come across Monty Urban's phone number, and I called him, and, I mean, that was amazing, too, the fact that not only is he a Hall of Famer, but also he he was at an advanced age, and he was incredibly sharp and with it. I know you've spoken to him as well, Mm -hmm. and he just had great stories and was a valuable resource. And then out of the blue, Steve gave me a cell phone number for Willie Mays, and I called it uh, unsolicited. He did answer, and he said, well, I don't know who you are, so I can't help you. And that was pretty much the extent of it. But then I reached out to Peter McGowan when I saw him at the New York Giants Preservation Society meeting where he spoke. And I asked him if he could put me in contact with Willie Mays, and sure enough, he did. And eventually, through Willie Mays' assistant, uh, Willie called me. And I talked to him for about 15 minutes or so, and uh, that was pretty awe-inspiring as well.
0: Yeah, I'm sure.
1: This book has opened up quite a number of doors, and, uh, I mean, even people like Ed Logan. I don't know if you've spoken to
0: him at all. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's actually been on the podcast, and we're, we're certainly going to get him back on at some okay.
1: point. And Ed's got great stories about his time in the clubhouse and his family's time, and it's just uh, through opening, just watching Ken Burns' baseball and asking an innocuous question on a website it has opened up a lot of doors
0: and given me a lot of p- interesting people to talk to, people I never thought I'd be able to
1: converse with, let well, alone the, write about.
0: The older I get, the, the less uh, it, it becomes about being, being awestruck even. I mean, even though it is, like, you're like, wow, oh my, oh, my God. But at the same time, then you kind of settle into the idea of, of it just all being, you know, part of the human story, part of the human process, and there's really nobody that we're putting above anybody else. Uh, No, it's true. I mean, everybody has very good stories
1: when it comes to this. And it's, again, like my coworker said, you don't know what you'll get unless you ask for it. And people are very forthcoming and usually very gracious about it. And I'm sure you've discovered that, too, in your research, that there's some people that are just, they're not exactly the most cooperative, but there's some people that just,
0: they'll give you anything you want. Right. Yeah, absolutely. it's, It's been a blast, and I look forward to uh, keeping, keeping going. Now, in terms of your project, um, how far do you think you can estimate that you, that you have left? I, I know that's a loaded question, but... Well, I mean, it's not necessarily a loaded question per se. It's just it's a difficult
1: one to answer in a clear time frame because right. I'm still researching. My goal is to put it out either in 2017 or 2018 to coincide with the anniversary of the move to San Francisco. That's a good idea. Um, well, oh, thank you. And um, But I still have to gather the information, I still have to write it, and then after that I'm going to shop it to a publisher. And I still have research to do, not only in New York, but also in Minneapolis and San Francisco, because I'm going to try to incorporate mm-hmm. the fact that the Giants nearly moved to Minnesota and figure out what went wrong there. And then with San Francisco, with the whole uh, issue of getting candlestick bills and things of that nature, plus also there's some things I have to go down to D.C. for for um, for the Library of Congress research for uh, when Horace Sonum and uh, the rest of the owners actually testified before the, the House about
0: uh, baseball revenue. The, the famous ago. Casey quote, Casey Stengel had a, had a famous quote. I forget what it exactly is, but but it's there's an audio uh, of the clip of, of him testifying.
1: Oh, great. Okay. I'll have to definitely look for that. But uh, I know that the figures, especially the attendance and the and the income figures from that time are sketchy at best. I did find a really good source for it, which has it listed, but I believe that his source material was from the seller papers at the Library of Congress, so I have to get down there and look at those firsthand. Mm -hmm. One of the hard processes of it is actually going through the old newspaper articles. The New York Times was fantastic with it because if you get a subscription, Mm -hmm. sometimes you get the digital access to all of their content. The rest of the papers, especially the ones that are not around anymore are a lot harder to find because while well, they are available on, but they're only available on microfilm and going through microfilm is, Ooh, that,
0: that's some labor intensive, tedious work right there. Right. Cause it's, it just hasn't been, and it should be somebody, I mean the thing is somebody has to pay for it Yeah, that's and, and you, you need, you need somebody to go, I'll do that.
1: Yeah. And it also takes time and, and effort and desire to do it as well. And, I mean, you look at a paper like the New York Daily Mirror that has almost pretty much been forgotten at this point in time. I mean, is anybody going to have the desire to put that in a digital format for, so everybody can
0: access it? Probably not. No, pro- probably not. That would be very difficult. Uh, for those who don't know, the New York Times is your, your digital subscription. You get access to arguably every article they've ever had since 1850. Uh, It's quite remarkable. I've gotten a lot done because of it, off of it, and and so is John. Uh, And and you you guys should check it out because it's—you can basically—and I'm sure you've discovered this, John. You can go through a day and see what the general feeling was around around the day if you know how to search. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was looking at the uh, based on some of the things you've actually put
1: up on your Facebook page of the uh, the old Brooklyn Dodgers football team. I was trying to do some mm-hmm. research about the, some of the older football teams, and I came across an article in the Times from 1912 talking about how the forward path was a, almost a wave of the future, that everybody was going to switch to this at some point in time. And just to think <laughs> that 102 years from that point, we're watching Peyton Manning and Tom Brady in the AFC Championship game. So it's... <laughs> It's pretty Mm -hmm. remarkable how far the forward pass has come, and just to think of what people thought of it in 1912. It's pretty interesting to see that sort of thing.
0: Now, was there a Brooklyn Dodgers football team in 1912?
1: There were several incarnations of football teams uh, in that era. I actually found, I have a list if I can pull it up right now, I'll show you, Uh, there were quite a few different teams. Apparently, overall, there were 17 different football teams to represent New York City from 1900 to the present day. The first one was the New York Brickleys Giants, who played in 1921. And there's some thought that they may have played in Brooklyn, at least some exhibition games were played at Ebbets Field and uh, Commercial Field in Wingate. But the only official game they played was at the Polo Grounds, and they lost to Jim Thorpe's team, the Cleveland Tigers, who were also called the Cleveland Indians. Um, In 1926, there was the Brooklyn Horsemen. I don't have much information on them yet. In 19, that was from AFL one. AFL two had the Brooklyn Tigers, and the All American Football Conference had the Brooklyn Dodgers in 46 and 48. And I think they just combined with the Yankee team in 1949.
0: Well, the old, the uh, latter Dodgers, that was an incarnation of, of Branch Rickey, which is something that, that is uh, quite dramatic because it was such a financial failure. That's basically what led to them having the argument to Alston. And um, uh, but, but the, there was another Brooklyn Dodgers team, and they they were in the National Football League from 1930 to 1943, and then I was actually 44. just going to bring them up. Yeah,
1: and it looks ah. like they changed names in 44 to
0: the Tigers. Exactly, exactly. There was
1: another Brooklyn team, though. I just have, and that was also the Brooklyn. The, NFL. the Brooklyn Lions played in 1926.
0: Oh. So just, the, just 1926.
1: Yes, so in the NFL, there was the Brooklyn Lions in 26, and in the AFL, there was the Brooklyn Horsemen, also in 26. So, so I don't have much information on either of those two teams right now.
0: Now, I'm guessing you've also done some research on the Brooklyn, uh, the Brooklyn, excuse me, the New York football Giants. Um, yes. Because, now, now how did these names get to know? Why, why is it, and, and I don't know, you know, if you necessarily know this, but uh, why is it that, that football teams took their baseball team's nicknames? What, what, what was it about the era that you, you, you just did that?
1: Well, a lot of times the ownership group was the same, um, and that's the case with the original New York Giants, the Brickley's Giants. Uh, they were owned by the National uh, Sports and Exposition Company, which is the parent company of the baseball Giants, and they played at the Polo Grounds, or at least in theory they did. And I guess uh, since it was the same ownership group, I think that's the same thing that happened with the original New York Yankee football team. Um, I believe they were owned by the baseball team, so they just took the same name. It's just probably made for convenience.
0: Uh, Yeah, I think it's also, you know, football was still trying to catch on, and and it was the way to identify with good sports that people are familiar with.
1: Oh, absolutely, and even... Even college football at that time had more of a hold on the public consciousness. And one of the people on the original New York Giants, um, I think his name was, uh, what's his first name here? I have his last name is Brickley, um, Charles Brickley. And he was a star halfback and kicker at Harvard. And he founded the team. But he also ran another team, which seemed to be called. The U.S. Navy Consortium team, I don't know if that was the same as the Giants. Maybe they changed names or if he ran two teams at the same time. But they did run concurrently, at the very least, um, if they were two separate teams. And I guess he branded it that way to either associate with the military or with the Naval Academy, who at the time was still a decent football program. Mm
0: -hmm. But
1: it seems as if the venture didn't really have any legs to it. I mean, the New York Brickley Giants, the two official games they played, they got trounced by a team in Buffalo and by the Cleveland team, and they lost by a combined score of, I think, 77-0. So they were not good. <laughs> I actually did that research last night and found out all this. So I'm wow. glad I was well, there, there, there you go. There, it, was, <laughs> it was
0: ready. There you go. Um, so shifting, though, back to, back to baseball, what are some of the, the, the great things that you've discovered that, that really stick out so far about your research?
1: Well, a lot of it, too, is not necessarily even about the Giants per se. Just in the course of doing it, you find things. Like in uh, 19 – I want to say it was 1915. I don't have that information directly in front of me, but there was a lot of talk that the Yankees were going to move from the polo grounds to a a stadium built in Long Island City, which would have just (laughs) been completely weird. And there was another proposal to build one right in the heart of Times Square. So the misconception is that the – Giants wanted the Yankees out of the polo grounds, when really it looks like the Yankees wanted out of the polo grounds. So it mm-hmm. it it was it does change a lot of things. And, yeah, I mean, there was some aspect that the Giants wanted the Yankees out because they were outdrawing them. Babe Ruth was an attraction. And the Giants were not doing as well at the gate as the Yankees were. But the Yankees seemed to be wanting to get out of the polo grounds before they even got Babe Ruth. So... And right. was, the Yankees were terrible in that era. So for them to want to leave, uh, maybe they just wanted a smaller ballpark. I don't know what the impetus was. But the actually, the New York Post published a letter from the Yankees to the baseball commissioner at the time uh, pretty much pleading with him to help them get the Times Square land. And then there was a newspaper that isn't around anymore. I think it was called Sporting Life. And I found there's an archive of that that's based out of California. And they had several articles almost for the entire late 1914, early 1915 year, that the Yankees were going to move to Long Island City. I mean, it was almost set in stone that it was going to happen. And who knows how that would have changed the face of baseball as we know it, but, I mean, obviously it didn't happen. And then some other things, too, the whole um, Candlestick Park, uh, there was an article, this was actually one of the people I encountered who was quite grumpy, the publisher of the Californian, was this newspaper uh, based out of the Bay Area in the 60s. And they had an article about, it was called the Candlestick Swindle, basically how the government gave this contractor a sweetheart deal and they ended up with a subpar product, long story short. And I contacted him and, yeah, he couldn't have been a less pleasant individual. He was very, very grumpy and Hmm. basically was just saying he didn't know where any of his material was and he didn't know why anyone would care where it was. All
0: right, that's up to you.
1: You do what you like. But um, either way, that was a surprising thing. I didn't realize there was so much controversy with it. Also, the fact that the people of Minnesota, they apparently were thinking that uh, we're getting the Giants. It's absolutely going to happen. And uh, they were selling almost a precursor to PSLs for that stadium to build it. And I guess that was deemed, uh,
0: yeah, you can't do that legally. So that was crap.
1: But the the Giants, I guess, gave them the impression. And in fact, there actually is a, an article from a Minnesota paper that at, I want to say it was the, they were having a meeting with the Minneapolis Millers and it was New Year's Eve. Horace Stoneman was drunk, which was not uncommon. And he apparently said that he was going to move the Giants to Minnesota in 1955. So that didn't happen. The thought of the Giants even moving before 57 was apparently a very rampant possibility. I talked to Horace Stone 's granddaughter. She said that he talked about it as early, far back as maybe 1947 about okay. moving the Giants. And that does coincide with the start of their attendance drop-off. So maybe there was something where they did see that the handwriting was on the wall or that they just couldn't make enough money in New York to make it work. And there have been a few other interesting facts that I've come across. One is great. I, I love this one. Um, Horace Stone, in that testimony that I mentioned before the Congress, before the House of Representatives, he had mentioned that he would be willing to move to Yankee Stadium or to the Baychester area of the Bronx. And there's nothing else Baychester. written about the Baychester area of the Bronx at all uh, in terms <laughs> of any proposed stadium, any ideas for where it might be, but I looked it up because I don't live too far away from that area. So basically at the time, it was a landfill, and they were in the process of selling it. They eventually did sell the land after the Giants left. It became an amusement park, which was called Freedom Land. That's up there, man. The Freedom Land uh, was shaped like the United States, and it was built by one of the people who designed Disney. He had a falling out with Disney for some reason or another and he designed his own theme park where the New England Thruway and the Hutchinson River Parkway meet. And there was a proposed, uh, what was it called, Freedom Land Inn, which is, I believe, where the ballpark would have been, which is right where the two highways meet and form sort of a, uh, they come together and form like an arrow point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Freedom Land eventually became um, the Bay Plaza Shopping Center, which is still currently there. And the parking lots became co op City. And the Freedom Land Inn, which was never built, is now being built on, and it's the Mall at Bay Plaza that they're building. So the whole thing comes full circle, and the Giants wanted, uh, apparently, according to Horace Stonemore, or maybe it was just wishful thinking on his part, they wanted to build a ballpark in that area. That's,
0: that's uh, crazy to think about that. And, and you, look <laughs> at, you look at the Baychester area, that would have been very based on the fact that everybody was moving to the, the suburbs um, because... That, In no way does that really accommodate the city of New York. No, there's no mass transit that goes there and no subways at the very least. There are buses. they would have gotten probably a lot of fans. I mean, like, if you look at the trend with all the other uh, teams that were moving somewhere, Mm -hmm. um, that would have been basically moving locally to where everybody can access you via a car. And there were two major highways that would have formed the boundary of the ballpark. So... In theory, it's
1: not a bad idea, but I don't think think it was ever put into practice. I think it was just more of a wishful thinking in front of Congress. And he also had mentioned that he would be willing to move into Yankee Stadium, but I found an article from 1956 that said that people were asking him the same question. He said he hadn't talked to Dan Topping in three years, but earlier that year he said he was going to talk to him. So clearly Horace Stoneham didn't either take the initiative or didn't want to. Move didn't want to move
0: into Yankee Stadium.
1: Dan I mean, I likely would, would
0: you would you want to move into Yankee Stadium if you were the Giants after after you know the whole psychological thing uh, game they played back in the day before Yankee Stadium opened. Uh,
1: you know what? At the time, it was different. It was a different ownership group. Horace was not his father, Charles, and mm-hmm. the ownership of the Yankees had changed hands. So it's probably different. But when I did speak with the historian at Yankee Stadium. They said, unfortunately, all the records from that time are were thrown away or destroyed, so there's no way of finding out if that meeting ever took place, but he does not think it would have been likely because Dan Topping was a businessman, and there was no business incentive for him right. to have the Giants come into Yankee Stadium,
0: except right. maybe some rent.
1: But they we're making that rent with
0: the football Giants and probably doing better with it. Right, exactly, and in, in the. In the- uh, I was thinking the football Yankees for a second, but but I don't think they existed by then. Uh, um, <laughs> before before we uh, we go, I want to shift back to the whole ballpark in Manhattan thing. Now thinking about that, uh, and thinking about baseball all around the country, uh, all those old ballparks were city ballparks where they they were blend they you know they blended in with the neighborhood. Um, I can I can imagine though that the idea to put. Uh, put a ballpark in Manhattan, in the middle of, of right in the heart of Manhattan, um, thinking about what the, the idea of a city ballpark, thinking about something like Wrigley Field or whatever, that might have been a little too much. It might have been. It was probably impractical um,
1: based on just the fact that it would have created a complete congestion nightmare around there. But that's not even the wackiest ballpark scheme that was hatched. There was one that the borough president of Manhattan at the time, Hulan Jack was very involved in on the West side of Manhattan. That would have been about 110,000 seats and it would have been a triple decker parking garage, office buildings, a TV center, maybe even a heliport. And it was basically to have the giants, to have the army Navy game to host the Olympics. It was very grandiose <laughs> in its design. And for most of 1956, basically from January to May, it was pretty highly thought of. Horace said he supported the idea and everything of that nature, but uh, it became very pricey. And I also just think that it was dreamed up as a thing to make everybody look good because Mayor Wagner was up for re-election. Hulan Jack announced it in March. In February, he was named as a potential communist by a New Orleans uh, group, and maybe he was just trying to cover himself by saying, oh, no, I support American things like baseball. Again, I have no proof of this. It's just conjecture at this point based on what I've found. Mayor Wagner on it and announced it ahead of time, and it was just it was a whole to-do. And the railroad, there were actually two other companies involved. The New York Times owned a piece of the land, and the New York Central Railroad. And the New York Central Railroad kept saying, nobody's ever talked to us about buying the land. So, and that kept going. And eventually the Times, are, I'm, it was the Journal American actually, did a follow-up in October and basically said, yeah, this whole thing was wishful thinking.
0: Nobody's approached the Central Railroad about doing this. And
1: it just sort of died a slow death and was never talked
0: about again. Yeah, there were a lot of people at fault for the conversation really kind of fading out. Um, looking to Long Island City, though, uh, to, to finish up with uh, some of these proposed places. Um, that would have been an interesting city ballpark, I actually. I, I think based off of that neighborhood and how it might have developed around a ballpark down there, um, I think that would have been uh, something interesting.
1: That one might have worked. Uh, it became too residential too quickly to do it after the fact, but at the time when the Yankees were thinking of doing it in 1915, probably could have worked and much like you said, like Wrigley or Fenway, the neighborhood could have grown up around the stadium. Plus, it was right near subways and accessible by car, so it wouldn't have been that terrible. It would have been interesting to see if they could have pulled it off, and uh,
0: it it seemed like it was all systems going, and that, too, also just died a slow death. Died a slow death. Well, uh, before this... Podcast guy to flow desk. John, is (laughs) there anything (laughs) is there anything that uh, that you'd like to add about what you're you're uh, going through with this uh, this Giants research before we uh, head out? Well, I have a lot more time to do it now because I was laid off. Oh uh, that. I'm sorry.
1: Well, I appreciate that. It was it's one of those things where I had in a sense the layoff may be a blessing in disguise because. Before I had Sunday and Monday off, libraries are closed on Sunday, and a lot of the research rooms are closed on Mondays, so I would have to either take a day off or pretend to be sick or something of that nature. So now I have a lot more time to do it. I'm not making any money, but still I have more time, so there's that. Well,
0: best of luck, man. I, I, I was unemployed for a while, and I was able to get into this and then eventually get a job, and you'll come through it, and uh, and we'll keep doing some research, and And keep on trucking in in those books and and talking to people. And and best of luck to you, man. Well, thank
1: you. Likewise, Sam. uh, If if ever I can help you again, just let me know. I'd be more than happy to. It's been a pleasure to be on the show with you. And uh, like I said before, off air, I have a potential connection that may be coming through that may be beneficial to you as well. And if that does happen, I'll certainly keep you updated on that.
0: I appreciate that. And we'll certainly have you on again in the future to keep us updated. Oh, great. Sounds good. All right. All right, everybody, that's our show. Thank you, John. I appreciate you coming on. And, uh, yeah, catch us tomorrow. We're going to have Mo Reznor on. He took video footage, speaking of the Giants. uh, It's a whole Giants weekend. He took video footage of the last game at the Polo Grounds that the Giants played. So that's going to be quite the chat. Anyway, have a good one, everybody. Take care.